in God's greatness in the face of uh, great odds is David. And we're going to be reading one of the Psalms that he wrote uh, at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 20, Psalm 5. Hear God's inerrant word. To the chief musician with flutes, a Psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy, because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. And uh, as we continue to worship in our responses to your instructions, we pray that you would uh, guide me and uh, anoint my lips and enable uh, this time of preaching to be truly a ministry of your spirit to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing our studies in the life of David about I've left First Samuel. We're going to preach on Psalm 5 because, as I mentioned, this is one of some psalms that he wrote as he was fleeing from Saul at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 20. And I think Psalm 5 and Psalm 133 especially, and I'm not going to really be preaching on Psalm 133. I'll, I'll maybe read a little section from it today. But those two psalms form an important, a very important context, introduction to some of the juicy chapters that are going to be coming up that uh, deal with how to be a rebel without, uh, or how to resist tyranny without being a real rebel yourself. Uh, this is the first of several treasonous psalms, and when I say treasonous, I don't mean he was actually treasonous, uh, because he was a patriot when he wrote this psalm, but Saul would interpret this as being treason and rebellion. As we go through this, I think you'll agree with me that that was the case. And of course, David would respond, I think very appropriately, hey, I'm not the rebel, it's Saul who has broken covenant with the people. It's Saul who has a broken covenant with God, who has destroyed the Constitution, who has run roughshod over the rights of the people. He's the real rebel. In fact, if you look at uh, verse 10, you'll see that that's exactly what he says about the whole administration of a Saul. He says, for they have rebelled against you. But Saul doesn't see it that way. Uh, Saul's desires have really become the highest law of the land. And so by the time we get to chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, we see that David has had to be on the run. Uh, he has been forced to flee. Now, he has tried everything in his power to make things work with King Saul, and all to no effect. And he wrote Psalm 133, demonstrates this. This is the great peace psalm. He wants peace. He has worked toward peace. And he has not been successful. He's even overlooked many of the evils that Saul has done. He has petitioned Saul. He's asked Jonathan to petition Saul. Uh, he's been willing to forgive the attempts on his own life. But it's finally come to a place where he has had to flee. And just his act of fleeing is interpreted as rebellion by Saul. And I think there are a lot of parents in America who can identify with Saul. They've had their children taken away from them, just as his wife was stripped from his arms. Uh, they have uh, been deprived of their civil rights. They have been treated as guilty without a court trial. 
without the right to face their accuser, without the right to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects. And they couldn't even sue the CPS agents who have not only violated their rights but done illegal things themselves because these guys have complete immunity that have been granted to them. Uh, Over the past year, the Jackson family has been without uh, their children. And uh, despite the fact that the CPS has broken their own rules a number of times, despite the fact they've not been able to prove anything against the, uh, the Jacksons, other than that they're Christians and that they homeschool, uh, the, the Jacksons have been assumed to be uh, guilty until they can prove their innocence to the satisfaction of the CPS. It's really a horrible situation. And so these parents have had their hands tied. Because of the outrageous laws that have been passed over the past four decades, there are quite a few parents who are grieving and in anguish, just like David was uh, when he fled from King Saul. Now, here is the weirdness of it. Some of these people have tried to fight it in the courts, some successfully. In fact, some have brought very good lawsuits against the CPS and others unsuccessfully. Some have said, hey, we're not even going to fight this. We're just going to leave with our kids. We're not going to fight the system. But by leaving, when they've been successful, leaving the country, they have been treated as kidnappers and felons, uh, as crooks. And it's a weird thing. How can you kidnap your own kids who want to be with you? And yet that's exactly what has happened. Some of you have been following the, uh, the, the story over the last couple of years of the very, very sad story of the mother and the daughter who have had to flee the country in order to keep the daughter from being taken away from the only mother she has known and being given to a lesbian who is not the biological mother, who is not an adoptive mother, and uh, it's it just, just a horrible situation. The true mother and the daughter are on the run to protect the daughter from sexual and other abuse. And uh, you might think this could not happen in the good old U.S. of A. It's happening all too commonly, unfortunately. And uh, like David, these people are unwilling rebels. They're unwilling rebels. They don't feel like they have a choice because the CPS is, is uh, running out of control. And the courts seem to be out of control. In fact, in that last case that I mentioned, they've awarded sole custody to this lesbian who has traumatized this kid. The kid doesn't want to be around this this person. Awarded sole custody to a person that the Bible would consider a criminal worthy of death. That's what Romans 1 says. And so everything seems to be upside down in America. And we may be facing more and more situations where Christians have to engage in civil disobedience, where they have to be unwilling rebels. And when I say unwilling, I mean unwilling, okay? Like uh, General Robert E. Lee, uh, who it was only after everything had been tried that he was willing uh, to be considered a rebel. We need to try every avenue possible before we get into uh, civil disobedience. David was an unwilling rebel when he wrote this psalm. But I want to go through it. I want to demonstrate the kind of righteousness he was exhibiting uh, in his resistance to tyranny. First of all, this so-called rebel was in total submission to God. Now, there are some modern patriots who are in rebellion against everything and everyone, including God, and uh, they certainly are not rebelling in a, in a Christian fashion, a biblical fashion, but that was not the case with David. He had a clear conscience. He had a clean conscience. He was in fellowship with God. And I want to read again verses 1 through 3. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. Now I see David's submission to God manifested in three ways. And the first way was in terms of his vision. It was a very God-centered vision. His thoughts were continually about God. And he says there, uh, I will look up. I will look up. If we do that, when tyrants consider us rebels, God will consider us to be faithful. But the moment we step out from under God's authority, we lose the authority to resist in a righteous way. And this is what's happened in too many circumstances. Let me give you an example from uh, our early days. 
Paine was an atheist uh, in the first American War for Independence, and uh, most of the founding fathers did not trust him because he did not see himself as being under God's authority. They did not trust the Jacobin uh, Revolution, as they called it, in, in France. They thought when a person is not under God's authority, it's automatically going to lead to bloodshed. It's going to lead to all kinds of, of uh, horrible, tyrannical acts, which is exactly uh, what uh, did indeed happen. For them, King George was throwing off the lordship of Jesus Christ, and they said resistance to King George is obedience to Christ. Even Thomas Jefferson who is not a Christian, he had those words on his lips. Why? Because everybody did. Throughout the culture was a very God-centered perspective. And so the first thing that we see here in David uh, demonstrating his submission, he was God-centered in his focus. Uh, 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 and, And then it's not just a vision issue. There's also, secondly, a very practical issue of a chain of command authority. Notice that David calls God my king. Saul was not his only king. There was a king who was above King Saul. A country is in a pretty sad state of affairs when, like uh, Israel in the time of Jesus, they say, we have no king but Caesar, if Caesar is the highest law in the land. But you know what? The country is in an even worse state of affairs when the citizens want to throw off King Caesar but they don't have anything to replace it with. They don't have any authority who is above King Caesar. That's a very sad state of affairs to be in. God is not interested in a don't tread on me kind of a rebellion that is autonomous. He wants us to have a don't tread on God's law kind of a rebellion, right? At every point, David shows himself to be a man who is under authority. When we see... A king above all kings, we see a chain of authority. And this is why in verse 10, David says, hey, Saul and his whole administration is in rebellion against God. They are under God's authority. They're in rebellion against his authority. So he's got moral ground to stand on in his rebellion. Just like a sergeant who countermands his uh, lieutenant or his captain and says, no, I know you heard him say such and such. We're going to do something different. He doesn't have the authority to command that unless he's upholding maybe a general's uh, orders. Uh, He doesn't have authority to do that. In the same way, a state that is commanding you to do something that is uh, uh, unconstitutional, you know, violates because he's under authority too. That king... Or the state needs to be under the Constitution and, more importantly, under the law of God. So if they command you to do something that counters that, they have no authority to do so. If God is my king and I give implicit, blind, absolute obedience to the state, I am insulting King Jesus. It's an offense to King Jesus. All authority must be seen as a delegated chain of command. When we see that God is God, it keeps us from making the state into a God substitute. Now, here's one of the problems. Uh, We live, uh, you know, it wasn't too long ago that our nation, our Congress even said, hey, we are under God, we must submit to His laws. Even in the 1950s, I've got congressional statements that were saying that. Today, our, 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 our congressmen seem to just ignore the whole phrase, one nation under God, or the phrase on our money, in God we trust. But we can keep that constantly in our minds when we resist the tyranny uh, of the state as David did. Now, some people have criticized the mother and the daughter for fleeing, uh, leaving the country. They said, hey, if you lose in court, you just need to, you need to just turn your daughter over to the state. And I think that is absolutely ridiculous. I think the Bible commands us to do exactly what that woman did. Here is from Jesus' lips. He did not say, turn yourself into all tyrants. He said, when they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. Matthew 10, verse 43. Now, fleeing is one of several forms of resistance to tyranny that we're going to be seeing in upcoming chapters that David models to us. And so seeing God as his king kept David from making too much of the state. But it also kept him from getting hot-headed and seeing the contest as being between King Saul and himself. 
he saw the contest as between Saul and his administration and God, and he's just simply a faithful uh, servant of the Lord God. The, the contest was always an issue that was God-centered. So first of all, David was in submission to God. Second, David saw God as truly being his king, his God and the king over Israel, which means there's a chain of command. The third thing about the submission was that it manifested itself in worship and prayer. Now, this is not just a theoretical concept. You can see it, I think, so clearly in verses uh, 1 through 3. This prayer, this rejoicing, this worship of God. A prayerless resistance to tyranny cannot be blessed by God. You see, the reason for that is that God is not in the business of overthrowing tyrants just so you can be comfortable and then to have it replaced with autonomy. Now, both are a stench in God's eyes. In fact, God uses tyrants to wake up an autonomous church so that they'll cry out to God as David is doing in this particular chapter. And we're going to be seeing God was using the tyranny of Saul to wake Israel up to their need of him. Then he goes along and he destroys the tyrant, but um, he does so only when it serves, uh, his, uh, when it serves his purposes. <clears throat> When rebels are characterized as prayer warriors, and that's what this psalm is about, it's a, it's a prayer. When they're characterized as prayer warriors, you will know that their rebellion is not a rebellion against God. As David fled from Saul, this psalm gave him a proper perspective. Okay, Roman numeral two is that the so-called rebel was siding with God, not siding with rebellion. Now, we've already touched on that, but I think this really deserves to be emphasized. Take a look at verses 4 through 6. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Wow. Talk about words that would be offensive to King Saul. (laughs) I think these would be very offensive words. But I want you to notice whose offense David is the most concerned about. It's the offense of God. God's offense. David is not angry because his rights have been taken away. He is angry because God's glory, God's name, God's laws, God's purposes have been trampled into the dust. Now, he's not excluding his feelings. Obviously, he's aligning his feelings with God. He's saying, yes, I agree with you, Lord. But he gives his reasons, every one of his reasons for why God should overthrow this tyranny were exclusively God-centered reasons. If the resistance to tyranny in our nation were characterized by the words that are in these verses, I think God would bless us. I think God would cause uh, incredible success in the political arena. (laughs) But if the only reason we are angry with the state is because our pocketbook has been hurt or because... Uh, you know, the bureaucracy has inconvenienced us or it's indebted our children or it's uh, made it difficult for our business to work. Yeah, those are legitimate reasons, but they are not going to give us the fortitude for the long haul in terms of resistance to tyranny because the state's going to be able to buy you off or intimidate you. It's not going to be uh, sufficient. But you cannot buy off a religious fanatic like David who is consumed with God's glory. I want us to go through each one of these phrases because I think they're really important. His first reason in in verse 4 as to why God should bring Saul down is not that my pursuit of happiness is being thwarted. Whose happiness is he concerned about here? Take a look at it. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. This is an incredibly wonderful truth. God takes no pleasure in the evil that is dominating our culture. And if David is consumed with God's pleasure, he's going to be consumed with pushing back the evil that God takes no pleasure in, right? He is siding with God's pleasure, but this gives him incredible zeal. Think about that phrase. It means that God 
cares about what's happening in America. Don't ever fall into the trap of thinking things are the way they are because God wants them to be that way. That is a misreading of God's sovereignty. Of course God controls all of history. Every detail of history is controlled, but Genesis 6, verse 6 still says, it grieves God when he sees wickedness in a nation. Okay, it's, it's not a situation, oh great, we're going to have some, some evil in this nation. It grieves God when he sees that. Uh, this verse says that God, it is not God's pleasure to see wickedness. What gives God's pleasure is to see righteousness filling the earth. Uh, what gives God's pleasure is to see Satan vanquished. Luke chapter 12, verse 32 says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So God's already committed himself to fulfilling his good pleasure, which is to see the earth filled with the knowledge of him as deep as the waters cover the ocean beds, to see righteousness growing. And he wants the church to come into agreement with his desires. Isaiah 62 says it's the church's fault that things are not advancing, not God's, because God is waiting. Hey, if you want to continue to suffer for a little bit longer, fine. Uh, I'll let you suffer a little bit longer. But if our rebellion is siding with rebellion for rebellion's sake, we're not going to get anywhere. If our resistance is because we are passionate for God's cause, we will have what it takes for the long haul. Now he goes on to say, nor shall evil dwell with you. Now that indicates that it's not God's desire that evil stick around for a long time. He's not handed out, uh, you know, settlers' rights uh, to evil. Um, he, he has a distaste for evil. He wants to see it removed, and he will succeed in seeing it uh, removed. And if the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that means he claims this planet, and evil's going to have to relinquish its claims to planet earth. What are we praying in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now in heaven, evil cannot dwell with God. It has no place with God, and that's what he wants to be happening here on earth as well. And as long as Christians look to secular solutions to America's problems, we're not going to have the long-term success that the Scripture has promised eventually we will have. There is a whole long lineup of rebels out there that are running for office. It's become kind of politically okay to be a rebel. Okay, yeah, I'm against the system. We're going to change the system. We hate the system. And as soon as they get into government, they're part of the system, right? But there's a whole long line of people that are willing to buck up against the system in the presidential race and Congress and in the Senate. But as they're running, you need to ask yourselves, could they passionately pray the phrases in verses 4 through 5? And if they can't, the likelihood is they don't have what it takes to overthrow the tyranny. Everybody recognizes the tyranny. They're uncomfortable with it. Well, not everybody. What is it, about 25 27%? So everything's going great. Uh, probably the lowest figure for quite a while. Then David appeals to God's holy presence. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. Uh-oh. That rules out a whole lot of politicians, doesn't it? The boastful shall not stand in your presence. Well, does that mean we ought to just pack up our bags and go home and just say we can't play politics anymore? Because it seems like politicians, all of them are boastful. Uh, and I would say no, no, not at all. You might have to wait. You might have to be patient like David was. You might have to patiently be building a whole coalition of people like we're gathering more and more around David until it became a great army. You might have to do that, but you cannot overthrow prideful arrogance with prideful arrogance. And that's what a lot of the conservative movement has been doing. It's one prideful, arrogant person resisting another prideful, arrogant person. It is not going to work. So many wannabe rebels out there just do not fit the description uh, that has been given of David. Though he was called a rebel, he was a humble man with a passion for the Lord. Now, you will notice that David is also siding with God's hatred, not his own. In fact, there's really nothing of David in these verses, verses 4 through 6. Nothing of David. It's all consumed with reasons that flow from God. Now, some people, let's read the phrase first. You hate 
all workers of iniquity. And some people are freaked out by that. Well, maybe it means God loves them less, you know, or ah, how can you talk about God hating anything? Uh, but you know what? If it wasn't for God's hatred, Lucifer would not be cast out of heaven. If it was not for God's hatred, Jesus would not have had to suffer on the cross so that you would not have to be hated. We'd all have to be hated if Jesus was not our substitute because he hates all evil and everything connected to evil. But it is God's hatred of wickedness that guarantees the success of the church because God's going to win. It's not going to be Satan. That is something that is a very encouraging doctrine. And if you are not convinced that God hates evil, you're not going to have what it takes to hate evil enough to motivate you to make a difference in society either. There are politicians out there that hate certain evils, but they're quite content to leave a whole bunch of evils alone. They don't have the vision of David. What is David's vision? You hate all workers of iniquity. And again, this shows that God is a God who cares about the state of America. He's got every motivation needed to make changes in America. The only thing God is waiting for is the church to care as much as he cares and to begin to pray in earnest that the wicked would be destroyed, either through conversion, that's one way he destroys, or taking him out, but so that his kingdom would be established. Verse 6 appeals to the many prophecies that God will judge evil men. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. Try saying that on the floor of Congress. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. I think uh, there's a lot of people in trouble in Washington, D.C. But, you know, some people who are so nice, they cannot conceive of God bringing any historical judgments. And I think, why are you even praying to God to make a difference in society? Why even bother praying? The fact of the matter is Jesus commands us in Luke chapter 18 to pray day and night for the avenging of his justice against the atrocities and the evils that are going on in society. You've got to read that sometime. It's the, the, the parable of the importunate widow. Let me read you Christ's promise to the church if the whole church would do exactly that. And I'm reading this from the New American Standard. Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. So if you long for justice to come out of D.C. and Lincoln and Des Moines and some of the other capitals and the various states, what you need to be doing is getting on your knees and praying imprecatory prayers uh, just like the importunate widow did. In fact, like that Baptist preacher, I got a picture of him as a Southern Baptist who is recognizing, wow, the Bible over and over again calls us to pray imprecations. We're going to start doing it. And, uh, and there's a little bit of a movement that's beginning to develop, very, uh, very encouraging. But the problem uh, many times is that people are doubting God. See, the problem is not that God won't come through. It's not even that there aren't enough rebels. It's that we're rebelling against the wrong things and we're not rebelling God's way. That's the major, that's the major problem. We're not u- willing to use his t- tools. We're not even willing. I've talked to so many pastors, oh, that's not Christian. You can't use those psalms. Um, you know, we cannot ask for God to destroy abortionists. I'm saying, where'd you get that from? Even Jesus used these imprecatory psalms. Paul certainly did. The book of Revelation certainly does. Finally, David appeals to God's feelings of revulsion. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. He didn't just abhor them back then. He abhors them today. And I simply cannot vote for a person whom God abhors, even if he is the lesser of two abhorrent people. Okay? I cannot. We've got to get it down into our bones that there are some things God abhors. He didn't want us even touching them. He abhors them. Now, God will work with some people who work in the system like Jonathan did, and he'll work through other people like David and his cohorts who worked outside the system. But the thing that was common to both Jonathan and David is that they loved God's kingdom. They were passionate for God's kingdom, and they were in opposition to Satan's. They were rebels against Satan's kingdom because they were in submission to God's kingdom. Those two 
are always going to be mutually exclusive, okay? You cannot, you cannot be halfway uh, in between. And uh, this is one of the reasons why Jonathan snuck away in 1 Samuel chapter 23, and he encouraged David. They're both on the same side. Even though they're using different political strategies, those are strategic issues. And so don't get all bent out of shape if there are some people who are working within the, the, you know, the party system and other people outside. Those are strategic differences. But you can both be on the same side whether you're a Jonathan or whether you were a David. And with attitudes like they had, it's no wonder that David got on the throne rather quickly. Those three verses I've just read remove any doubt in my mind that God cares about what's going on in America. Of course He cares. Of course He cares what's going on. And so our prayers to Him do not have to be, Lord, please, I hope that you will be interested in answering this prayer. No, we pray with the absolute confidence. Why? Because we're praying God's passions. We're praying His desires. And when our prayers are taking on the character and the promises and the passions of God, we can pray with an absolute confidence before Him. So this morning, I would urge you to measure the character of your rebellion against the rebellion of David. Are you in submission to God's law? If you're not, your rebellion is a lawless rebellion. Uh, secondly, and it's not going to be blessed by God. Secondly, is your rebellion more concerned with your own feelings than it is with God's feelings? If it is, then you need to ask God, Lord, transform my heart and help me to be a submissive rebel, a righteous rebel, a God-centered rebel. That's the only kind of rebel that's going to make a long-term difference. The third thing I see in this psalm, this is Roman numeral three, is that the so-called rebel sought God's ongoing guidance. He was not just doing what was right in his own eyes. And let's read verses 7 through 8. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. So he was seeking God's will, God's leading, and God's call upon his life. Very, very important. If you have a sense of God's calling, this is what God wants me to do, it will give you the energy and the stick to to follow through even when everything is going tough. If you don't have a sense of God's call upon your life, it's going to be so hard when you come up against resistance. David was not an autonomous hothead. He was a man who sought God's guidance on everything, and because he knew he was following God's will, he did not despair when things were not going well. He did not get discouraged and throw up his hands and want to give up when things were moving slowly. Instead, he was sustained with the knowledge that if God be for us, who can be against us? It's my prayer that the Tea Party um, movement uh, would be infused with so many people with such a character of God-centeredness that it would not be a flash-in-the-pan uh, you know, rebellion, but it would be a rebellion against evil that is characterized by submission to God's will. Now, fourth, the so-called rebel rebelled with God's sovereign authority, not with the autonomous authority of we, the people. In fact, in verses 9 through 10, David doesn't have too much trust in we, the people. He didn't have too much trust in the government. He doesn't have too much trust in the citizens. Why? Because he believes in total depravity. He, he just does not have the kind of attitude that a lot of people today have toward the citizens. Polls, I think, would have been meaningless to him. Why? Total depravity. Party opinion would have been meaningless because of total depravity. There are too many Christians who have a supreme trust in man and what man thinks, and so they opt for democracy. What's democracy? It's the tyranny of the 51%. It, it, it really, in fact... Look at verse 9. Verse 9 could describe democracy just as easily as it could describe uh, a, 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 tyrann a, a tyrannical, how do you pronounce it, um, dictatorship. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. 
Now, you might question whether I have the right to take something that's been addressed against King Saul and to use it against democracy. Phil, you can't be using that very right. Surely this is not the common citizen. I have the right to do this because Romans 3 quotes that verse and applies it to every man, woman, and child that's ever been born and says they're totally depraved. This is the proof text that Paul uses to prove the total depravity of man. And that doctrine of total depravity informed David's views of government. He hated centralized government. Why? Because the doctrine of total depravity meant you cannot trust people with that much power. He hated no government. Why? Because the doctrine of total depravity means you're going to have petty tyrants rising if you don't have government. And if there had been anybody advocating democracy back then, he would have hated democracy for the same reason, the doctrine of total depravity. That doctrine made David realize we've got to once again go back to being a republic, which it was under the judges, and it would be again under David, but it had become a little dictatorship under Saul. He said, we've got to go back to being a republic. Now, this may shock some of you, and not probably most of the people who have been attending here for a little while, but America has never been a democracy. It has never been a democracy. It is a republic, not a democracy. And don't trust any politician who talks about democracy, democracy. Don't trust him further than you can throw him. Our founding fathers hated democracy. They had absolutely nothing good to say about democracy. They despised democracy. Let me give you a few quotes from the founding fathers of America just to show this to you. President Thomas Jefferson said... A democracy is nothing more than mob rule where 51% of the people may take away the rights of the other 49%. (laughs) President John Quincy Adams said, The experience of all former ages had shown that of all human governments, democracy was the most unstable, fluctuating, and short-lived. James Madison said, Democracy was the right of the people to choose their own tyrant. (laughs) He knew democracy was always going to result in tyranny. He looked at at France and he said, even before the revolution, they knew. They knew that that was where it was headed. They said, if these guys are advocating democracy, there is going to be tyranny. There's going to be bloodshed. He, He knew that's exactly where it's gone. And we've seen this in country after country around the world in my lifetime, Africa, Asia, You know, here we are as Americans, we're exporting democracy, thinking we're exporting freedom. No. And we wonder, well, how come there's so much bloodshed after this uh, democracy reform has taken over? It of necessity follows democracy. It is tyranny. Here is what John Marshall said. Between a balanced republic and a democracy, the difference is like that between order and chaos. John Adams, our second president, said, Remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. In another place, he said, Democracy will soon degenerate into an anarchy, such an anarchy that every man will do what is right in his own eyes, and no man's life or property or reputation or liberty will be secure. I love Ben Franklin's description of democracy. He said, democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for lunch. (laughs) And then he went on to say, liberty is a well-armed lamb contesting the vote. (laughs) And David was going to contest the vote of Israel because they had become so weak-kneed, they were not going to resist Saul. There's no way. He contested the vote of the military because they had been neutered. They were not willing to stand up to King Saul. He was certainly going to contest King Saul and his unconstitutional laws that had been implemented. For example, we're going to be seeing in our next message, uh, 1 Samuel 20, that David completely ignores the anti, uh, how shall I word this, uh, sword ownership laws that uh, Saul had distributed. He didn't have any sword. What's with that? A soldier without a sword. They had to all turn in their swords before they went home. And why did he resist that? Saul had no biblical authority to be saying, you cannot have a weapon in your home. No biblical authority whatsoever uh, to, 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 to say that. 
And so David resisted tyranny, but he did not do that independently. He was not autonomous. He made his decisions from the Word of God. Every decision of rebellion against King Saul was an act of submission to the authority of God's law. That's the only thing, by the way, that's going to end the endless cycle of bloody revolutions that happens in Africa, you know, where last revolution, you know, lasted for a few years and somebody else decides he's going to take over. It's just one revolution after another. It's never going to be until a nation embraces God and his law submits to God, you're not going to have the kind of peace that America has enjoyed for so many uh, generations. We've got to understand biblical civics. And the doctrine of total depravity is one of the foundational doctrines of biblical civics, or we're going to be uh, constantly hoodwinked by smooth-talking politicians. Okay, let's read verses 9 through 10 uh, once again. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Let the, uh, cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. David is praying for the complete overthrow of Saul's government because it had become so bad, but he realized he's not going to be able to achieve this merely with votes. He realizes ultimately this is a battle that can only be won as we engage in spiritual warfare where the elect angels are fighting with the demonic angels. This is, a, this is a spiritual battle that he is engaging in. Now, he'd already had some experience in demonic warfare when he was in the palace of King Saul. You'll probably remember that. But let me give you some hints as to what is going on here. The renowned Hebrew scholar Friedrich Delich pointed out that there is a wordplay uh, a play on words here that clearly indicates that Satan is involved in some of the evil that is happening. Another commentator says, This description being true, we are practically compelled with the leech to contend that there is something satanic about their sin. Uh, the Hebrew indicates that the destruction, for example, is more than just an attitude within these men. It is a living being that is controlling these men. Okay, there's a, a double play on meaning, uh, Dilich says. It can be translated as their inward part is a yawning abyss, or another way of saying it is they've got hell within themselves. Okay, same thing is being said there in the next phrase. Their throat is an open tomb. Their, what comes out of their lips has the stench of death upon it. Now, this is exactly the same kind of language that's being used in James when he says you can't tame the tongue. The tongue is a world of iniquity set on fire by hell itself. What's he saying? It's set on fire by demons. Demons use the tongue to uh, destroy God's purposes. And so verse 9 is indicating that the smooth flatteries of these people are moved by some inward malevolent evil. But David words it in such a way where these guys are not off the hook. They can't say, oh, well, it's not my fault. The devil made me do it. No, they are free agents. They willingly enslaved themselves to Satan. In fact, the, the person that Jesus uh, kicked the demon out of, who was totally in bondage to Satan, Jesus goes on, he says, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Well, how could it be worse than what he was through? He was in total bondage. No, he could go out and take seven more demons thousand more demons, it could always be worse. But these men had started off engaging freely in sin, but Satan took advantage and bound them in their sins. And that is what David is tackling in this prayer. He's rebelling against Satan. He's wrestling with demonic principalities and powers, just like Ephesians 6 says we must. Now let's look at the two strongholds. The first stronghold that David saw as a terrible problem was lying. Now remember, I don't know how many weeks ago it was, we looked at... Um, all of the lies that Saul had engaged in, even when he solemnly took an oath, so help me God, may he strike me dead, whatever the oath was, that he still broke his oaths. He just could not seem to overcome this issue of lying. And you've probably met people who have a stronghold. They lie and they feel bad about it, but they just cannot seem to overcome their lying. 
They sometimes don't even know when they're telling the truth, when they're not telling the truth. It's a stronghold. It's an area where Satan himself is controlling them. Now, the second stronghold is an inward destructive principle. You've probably met people like that as well. They destroy every relationship that they get into, even their loved ones. They're destroying. And they're thinking, they hate themselves for it. Why am I doing this? It's a stronghold. It's demonic. Satan and his demons are using you to try to destroy uh, that which is good. So we've got to recognize strongholds. He says their inward part is destruction. And then he repeats the same two strongholds in different language. He says their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. So verse 9 is listing the problems. Then verse 10 is tearing down those problems. And part of our resistance to tyranny has got to be to tear down the strongholds of Satan. Tearing down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We've got to engage in that. David says, pronounce them guilty, O God. Another translation has it, judge them, O God, or declare your judgment against them, O God. In spiritual warfare, what we are doing is we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. He's even given to overcomers that rod of iron to smash the nations. And what we do is we come into agreement with God's purposes and we say, Lord, declare your judgment against them. We've already offered up the evidence that they are guilty. You make your declaration. We come into agreement with you and your judgments against them. And this is what Jesus modeled to us. He did not one single time resist Satan without quoting the authority of God in his word. Not one single time. You can see it all through the scripture. Zechariah 3 verse 2. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Jude 9 says, Michael the archangel, the strongest of the elect angels, it says about him when he resisted Satan, he dared not bring a railing accusation against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So it's God's rebukes, God's judgments, God's pronouncements that have power. That's why we've got to fill our mouth with the scripture. That's why when, when the church begins to pray these imprecatory prayers, this is just the first of several treasonous prayers, you know, that David wrote. We're, we're maybe going to look at one or two in the future, but there's a bunch of them out there. But when we bring those scriptures upon our lips, Hebrews says, the word of God is powerful. Is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's an incredible. He's not just using a figure of speech. It has reality there. Second Corinthians ten says, "For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds." So never neglect this facet of warfare. And the next step that David takes after bringing God's declarations of judgment is to ask God to bind them, to frustrate their purposes. Verse ten goes on to say. Let them fall by their own counsels. By their own counsels. That's an interesting phrase. Let them fall by their own counsels. This is sort of what happened at the Tower of Babel. This is what happened at several of the battles in Israel's history where the enemy destroyed themselves. This is what we can pray for, that God would cause these people uh, to destroy themselves. He would bring down... Every organization that's promoting socialism and every form of evil in our nation to cause them to be confused and destroyed by their own counsels. And when you think about it, the things that the sodomites and the feminists and the ACLU and others are pushing for are the very things that could defeat them. Very things. They are so destructive to our nation. If God opens up the eyes of the nation, they could be thrown out very, very quickly. Okay? So... Pray that God would confuse, bind, frustrate their purposes, that their counsel would appear foolish, ineffective, impotent, incompetent. Any other adjectives you want to throw in there, okay? If God cuts off their ability to communicate with each other like he did at the Tower of Babel, it's over for them. Then David asks God to destroy their power to rebel. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. Have you noticed through this psalm, Everybody's a rebel. We're all rebels against something. You're either a rebel against Satan or you're a rebel against God, but there is no neutrality. You got to take sides. You got to fight against one or the other. Everyone is a rebel. Anyway, what would it take to cast the 50 or so organizations that have taken over Washington, D.C., to cast them out of power? What would it take? Because they are not invincible. 
Only God is invincible, right? They are not invincible. What would it take to get them thrown out? I think God could use, if you look through the Scriptures, any number of ways to cast these people out of power. Let's just take one. Economic collapse. That could dry up all the funding of the liberals overnight. And we could sing, glory, hallelujah. (laughs) These guys wouldn't have any money to continue to, 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 to function. Now, we don't need to fear economic collapse unless, of course, you guys are living like liberals, which you shouldn't be, uh, you know, spending the future. But we might have to suffer a little bit. We might have to go to a lower level of uh, standard of living. But you know what? God might be allowing this constant increase of the deficit to be the very thing that will defund the liberals out there. He could be doing that. There's any number of ways God could do it. So I don't know how God's going to gain the victory in America, but I have the confidence that He will as the church rises up and begins to enter into warfare praying. All of this is rebellion, but it's the rebellion of prayer against the kingdom of Satan. Now, the last thing that characterized David's rebellion was that the so-called rebel longed for peace, not for war. Let's read verses 11 through 12. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. Now this parallels Psalm 133. And I I won't be preaching on all of the Psalms as we go through David's life or it'll take us forever to get through the series. But um, I do want to just briefly read that Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So David did not idealize war. He longed for peace. But he didn't idealize peace either. Okay? He did not pursue peace at any cost. He would have considered that to be slavery. That's not genuine peace. He loved peace, but he fought for peace. And if there was one thing that the chapters we're going to be looking at in 1 Samuel and the upcoming chapters demonstrate is he had zero respect for people who allowed tyranny to come without any resistance. Had zero respect for that. On the other hand, David rebuked men like Joab who loved fighting for the sake of fighting. Okay, so there's a balance that we've got to be embracing here. Uh, John Frame wrote an interesting article called uh, Machen's Warrior Children, and he's kind of applying some of the principles we've been looking at in terms of civics. He's applied them to the church. Now, back in the early 1900s, what happened is so many of the mainline denominations had been completely taken over by liberals, and God was raising up these warriors who would defend critical doctrines that had come under attack. Believe it or not, these mainline churches all the way back then were denying the resurrection of Jesus, a literal resurrection, virgin birth, miracles, inerrancy of Scripture, sufficiency of Scripture. There was a whole bunch of doctrines that they were attacking, and these warriors were valiantly defending the truth against these attacks, and they were doing a great job of it. But what happened over time is that some of these warriors, after they left the mainline denominations or got booted out, as the case may be, Then they started fighting over lesser doctrines within the next denomination. Then they'd form another denomination, start fighting over lesser doctrines there, and then they would finally get independent, and they would fight with their elders and leave. And I can think of a couple of cases, but one one case, the guy left that church and formed a home church, and eventually he kicked everybody out except for his family. And at one point, his wife was under discipline and could not take communion. I mean... Here was a guy who just loved fighting. We call that pugnaciousness. And you know what Paul says about people like that? He says a divisive person reject after the second and third admonition. Don't have anything whatsoever to do with that kind of a person. Why? He's not rebelling in God's way against God's thing, uh, the things God wants him to rebel against and with God's 
uh, with God's blessing. And so we've got to be very, very careful that we're walking this line properly. I worry when I see people in churches and politics and the military, family, wherever, who are fighting for the sake of fighting. They just love fighting. David was as good at fighting as anybody. So it's not an issue of whether you can fight or not. David was a good fighter. But he fought for righteousness and he fought for peace and he knew what made for peace and it was not perfection. Anyone who becomes perfectionistic in his approach to family government, church government, civic government is going to get himself into trouble eventually. David was not perfectionistic. He was willing to put up with all kinds of imperfections in Saul's administration and work within the system. He was willing to do that. If you're rebelling against your family because your family is not perfect, you do not have God's blessing upon you, okay? It's not an issue of perfection. Rebellion is an absolute last resort when it comes to these various governments, church, family, church, and state. When David was, what, what David was looking for was sinners who were humble enough to recognize sin in themselves and to fight against that sin. That's a great characteristic to have. What we tend to do is see all the sins of everybody else and ignore the sins in ourselves. So he was looking for sinners who were humble enough to recognize their own sins. He was looking for sinners who had experienced God's grace and were willing to give grace to others. He was looking for sinners who valued grace so much they would fight tooth and nail for anybody who would overturn that grace. He was looking for sinners who distrusted sinners enough that they wanted sinners bound down with the chains of the law, whether they were the governors or the governed. And it just shocks me, it just flabbergasts me that the modern grace movement just kind of pitches out law. Grace prepares us for the law. And law prepares us for grace. They're kissing, kissing each other, something like that in the, in the Scripture. It just boggles my mind. We've got to value the law. Otherwise, we don't understand total depravity. We do not. David was looking for sinners who were impatient with tyranny, but patient with sinners who confessed their faults. David wasn't always successful in maintaining this balance, but he was the most balanced rebel that I know of. And I hope you rebel against Satan's tyranny by taking heed to the cautions of this psalm. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this word of caution that you have given us, as well as this word of encouragement. What an encouraging thing it is to see your hatred and your motivation, your hatred of sin, your motivation to deal with the sin that is in our society. And we long, Father, to see righteousness lifted up in in our nation. And we... Uh, pray this psalm against those who are seeking to destroy every vestige of Christ's rule in this nation. They want to remove, in God we trust, from our money. They want to take it out of our pledge. They've already taken the Bible out of the court system. They've uh, done everything they can to trample on the heritage that our founding fathers gave to us. But Father, we pray these words against uh, the, the evil and uh, the leaders uh, of the movement to uh, overthrow uh, the, the bonds of Christ. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. Praise Jesus. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. and fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also 
who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. We thank you, Father, for this prayer of Christ that you've recorded in your scriptures. And we come into agreement with it. And with anticipation, we look for you to destroy those who are out to destroy your people, to destroy your law, to destroy the heritage laid up by the Puritans and the godly founders of this nation. And so we pray this with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.